The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, welcome to Museum Life for another really great uh, conversation and uh, show today. Uh, I am very excited about the show. I have the authors of a very interesting book that was published uh, last year called Magnetic, The Art and Science of Engagement. And the, if not, the title alone would get me all excited about uh, uh, both having the word art and science in one sentence. Uh, the, uh, the, the content of this book is, I found, really refreshing. Uh, throughout my career, I have, um, there have been museums, uh, science centers, uh, organizations that I thought that there were at certain times were literally just magical, or perhaps Beth and Anne consi- would uh, call them magnetic. They seemed to do no wrong. The staff all worked very well together. Uh, they did wonderful work, and money just seemed to be attracted to them. And uh, we sometimes talk about that as uh, maybe sometimes we even sour say sour grapes, or it was just a certain time, or you know, maybe there's a secret. Were they just lucky? Did they just have a great uh, director of some sort, or did they just happen to be sitting on such a big endowment they didn't have to worry about the things the rest of us do? And so, Anne Bergeron and Beth Tuttle are going to tell us a little bit about what really, uh, what are the criteria and what are sort of the ingredients that make uh, a museum magnetic. And uh, during the show, they'll also talk to talk to us about the process that they use to identify magnetic museums. Uh, I'm going to let Anne and Beth tell you more about their uh, tra- uh, career trajectories and the kinds of work that they do now. But let me do uh, introduce them uh, briefly by saying Anne Bergeron has devoted her professional career to ensuring a vibrant and healthy cultural sector. Uh, she's an authority on nonprofit organizational development, fundraising, and engagement. Uh, Anne is a uh, an independent museum consultant and I am thrilled uh, to say that she is a colleague of mine in the museum group. 
uh, Beth Tuttle, who is also a colleague of mine in the museum group, is president and CEO of the Cultural Data Project, and she has more than 25 years of experience as an author, strategist, and management leader in cultural philanthropic advocacy advocacy and the corporate sectors. Ladies, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. Wonderful. Beth, I'm going to begin with you, if you don't mind, and just ask you to share briefly with our audience your career trajectory and especially any experiences that you feel have shaped your thinking about museums. Thanks so much, Carol. Um, Well, you know, my uh, love of museums really was born pretty early on, and it was strong enough that by the time I got to college, that even though the field of museum studies was really quite nascent at the time, I was able to cobble together a museum focus within the interdisciplinary American studies curriculum. (coughs) Excuse me. And (coughs) I apologize. I came out of school really wanting to work in museums, but it happened to be at a time when funding for the arts was really, really tight and it was difficult to find a job. I ended up actually working in the performing arts for a couple of years, and I didn't get to work in a museum until a little bit later in my career when I had the opportunity to help build a new one, and that was uh, to build the Newseum, which is the Interactive Museum of News here in Washington that opened in 1997. Um, You know, that was a really formative experience to get to understand the way an institution might conceptualize the stories it wanted to tell, to think about building a collection really from scratch, um, and to very intentionally uh, uh, plan for its audiences and its role in the community. So that was one of my very formative experiences. I subsequently uh, joined the Smithsonian as the Deputy Director for External Relations and Planning at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, and that was a really um, important experience for me in the sense that that was a very well-respected national museum that needed to undergo a bit of a reinvention at the time. Um, And so that was really a very uh, formative experience in the sense that it it was largely about Um, looking inside first to really find our heart and our spirit and what it was we were really um, passionate about and then turning our our views outside um, to look at our community and the nation that we served and to think about how to position for that. Um, Worked as a consultant for a number of years, um, principally with museums until uh, 2013, last year when I became president and CEO of the Cultural Data Project. And, you know, for me, all these things have been linked by just a very abiding curiosity about the factors that influence performance, you know, whether it's of individuals and institutions, but particularly in the cultural sector. And I think I'll stop there. I mean, there's one other very formative experience for me about the power of museums, but I think we could bring that up a little bit later. Fabulous, fabulous. Thanks, Beth. And how about you? Well, I wasn't quite as um, directed as, as Beth was. I didn't um, really know that museums were going to be the place where I found myself um, when I was uh, in college. I grew up in a family that prioritized the arts and music, and so it was just um, kind of something that was a natural affinity t- to me to kind of find a path uh, into the arts. Um, and I got started in 
nonprofit cultural enterprise after college. I just kind of um, I kind of pursued that um, not in a <laughs> not in a very uh, uh, formal pathway, but you know I I found myself uh, gravitating toward uh, fundraising because it kind of uh, it linked to certain talents that I had. I had a facility for numbers. I had been a math major in college. I have a, you know, my brain kind of thinks about strategy. I have an affinity for communications and relationship building. And so it just seemed a good fit. And I started working with small and uh, mid-sized performing visual and literary arts organizations predominantly in the New York City area. And then I found my way to the Guggenheim, and I basically fell in love, you know, with the Guggenheim and with museums in general, art museums, I should say, specifically. And, um, you know, I've just been very fortunate to work with creative entrepreneurial organizations. And, you know, over the course of my career, um, you know, I've observed that the success that, you know, organizations have is grounded by, you know, organizations that are innovative and creative, their success is grounded in the the organizational processes and structure that they have. It's kind of like, um, you know, um, the way really innovative artists or musicians or scientists, for that matter, you know, you have to study the fundamentals first. And then you can go and, you know, dream big, think big, think in different ways. But, you know, you're grounded in, you know, the the operational processes and systems and practices that work that allow for that kind of growth and and idea making. Uh, that's I think that's a very good way of putting it. And the other uh, I just noted now. I you know of course I've known uh, both of you and respect both of you. But I uh, just in how you describe your careers and the the words you choose, I I can imagine that you were very good complements to each other. I mean, writing a book uh, as co-authors is uh, probably a little kin to a marriage. Uh, but I. <laughs> And and again, this isn't true confessions. You don't have to admit anything there. But I just see, uh, just as you were sort of talking about the power of organizations, the power of the two of you coming together and and really having skills and uh, approaches that complemented each other so very well. And I can really see that in the book that you produced. And I'm going to continue on uh, with with you for a bit. Uh, can you just uh, uh, share a little bit about what led the two of you to write this book? Sure. Um, I think that actually, you know, what you just said about um, the the complementary nature of the way Beth and I think and our approaches and the the practices that we honed. I think you are exactly right, and I think that we did find a very good fit. Um, and, you know, it all started really because one day in late 2009, Beth called me up and said that she was, you know, sitting on her computer looking at this RFP that AAM had issued for a call for proposals for the um, spring 2010 conference. And she said, you know, would you be interested in doing something with me? And, I, you know, I still remember this conversation. It was one of the most enjoyable ones that I'd had in my professional career where we just talked for a couple of hours brainstorming and thinking about the things we really cared about, the, what we had seen, um, the kinds of um, 
I don't know, approaches that we had seen that really worked to build community, build audiences, engage uh, and engage people within a museum and, and help them thrive. And, it, you know, what emerged from that conversation is uh, what we eventually called magnetism, this, this, uh, this sense of, you know, a high-performance organization that has the ability to substantially impact uh, their audiences and their communities. So we, we ended up doing a session. We presented nine case studies um, of museums who were doing extraordinary things. And um, at the end of it, someone in the audience just, you know, said, well, when's the book coming out? <laughs> <laughs> and Beth and I turned to each other and went, huh. <laughs> Maybe what we should concept. write a book. <laughs> that's yes. why you, you can tell the rest of the story. Well, no, that's exactly that. And, and just told the story. That's exactly how it happened. We said, "Huh, maybe we should write a book." And uh, you know, we we it, it really stemmed from a genuine sense of curiosity. Um, we wanted to learn something in the course of developing this session for AAM. And when we started that learning process of of uh, listening to these museums, we thought there really is something going on here and there is something actually quite different. Um, <clears throat> you know, both Anne and I certainly came to this project. We both came out of the, you know, if you want to think about it that way, of uh, the people and relationship side of the business. You know, Anne was, was deeply ingrained in the fundraising um, and, and uh, you know, side of the business and I was deeply ingrained in the communications um, side of the business. We had both worked around how you create operational excellence through the lens of that and in partnership with our, you know, with our colleagues who were on the content sides of the, of the institution. But, you know, when we started talking to these organizations, we heard such, um, such story, stories that, that, that were really qualitatively different from some of the experiences that we um, had had either working as consultants or working inside of institutions where we had seen it not working so well in some cases. So that's what really got us going. And, uh, you know, we're eternally grateful to all of the people in the field who spent so much time talking with us and helping us understand. So we started, you know, really with a, um, we started with a quantitative look at the field uh, where we, where we um, looked at about 18 measures of performance to understand were, was there a group of museums that was, you know, that could be described as outperforming the field in terms of its ability to attract and retain resources and grow its programs and, and you know, enhance its, its levels of activities um, on behalf of the community. And out of that, we identified about 24 um, institutions that had in fact, outperformed the field and out of that and the conversations we had with them to understand what was happening in their organizations, we refined it down to the six institutions that we profiled in the book. You know, what strikes me as also another aspect of, of I think, why I gravitated uh, uh, so much to this book and, and, and certainly why I personally find you such wonderful colleagues uh, to be able to interact with is that, uh, as, as you said, Beth, you, you come from the people side, you know, the financial side, the communication side, um, but... 
oftentimes those that side of the museum is considered the business side of the museum. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to get the money and you got to tell people about it. It's the finance and marketing, uh, the development side, and 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 being someone who always lives on the other side of the house and 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 doing content development and and, and working with visitors. Uh, I have seen many institutions where those two sides don't necessarily get along. Uh, maybe they they don't use the same vocabulary, or um, uh, there is a perception that they that they aren't you know rowing in the same direction for the institution. And it's and and so I think it's very interesting. Uh, of course, I'm sort of stealing your punchline, but but very, and I won't. I promise. Uh, very interesting that as you looked at this in a very uh, careful and I would say you know quanti- quantitative analytical way, you came to some really really surprising uh, definitions and uh, conclusions. So, uh, Beth, what? If you can just sort of, uh, I think, following along on that train of thought, uh, I know Anne talked uh, defined what you meant by magnetic mm-hmm. museums a little bit, but could you just sort of uh, expand on that a little bit and and say how does that definition differ from say a you know a good museum or what we call best practices? Right. So you know the way we ended up defining. Um, Defining magnetic museums, as Anne began to, to describe, is that these are organizations that deliver very tangible cultural value, but they also deliver high levels of civic value. They achieve superior business results at the same time, but they do that through this commitment to service and engagement and empowerment of others. So when we talk about what makes them different, if you will, from a good museum, you know, what makes the difference between a good and a great museum, for example. I think what distinguishes them is that they, what we learned is that what distinguishes them in terms of their practice is that they are powerfully aligned around a compelling vision, and you can spot them by the kinds of bonds that they're creating through meaningful experiences that are genuinely enriching and strengthening both their internal communities and their external communities. So when we think about the definitions of good museums, you know, they typically center around sort of operational or programmatic characteristics, the policies and the procedures, the programs, the standards of professionalism, those kinds of things, the quality of the education program, the quality of the collection, the care of the collections, you know, those types of, of definers. And all those things are critically important, right? You don't have a quality experience without all of those things. But what we found is that magnetic, being magnetic, is really about how these museums behave. It's about how they are at the core. So these are institutions that do all those operational things, and they do them really well. But they turn outward. They're of service to their communities. They provide these moments of meaning, and they bring people together in ways that transform. In other words, they're not only highly competent and professional institutions, they're really emotionally intelligent institutions. Very, very interesting. So, so it's not just what they do, you know, on the checklist, uh, uh, say, you know, the AAM checklist for good, good museum practice and museum 
accreditation, but it's also the underlying why they do it mm-hmm. that that sort of directs them to the how. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. very very interesting. We are going to take a brief break, and when we go, come back, we're going to get into a little more details about uh, what Beth and Anne found in uh, their research and uh, what what were the factors that really made a magnetic museum. So we will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossard for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back uh, to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert, and I am here today with Anne Bergeron and Beth Tuttle, the authors of Magnetic, the Art and Science of Engagement. And if you are as excited about this book uh, as I am, you can still purchase it uh, through AAM Press. Uh, That's the American Alliance of Museums. If you go to their website, I'm sure they will be happy to purchase uh, or let you purchase this book. And it is one that everyone should have on their 
bookshelves. Uh, while we were at break, Anne and Beth and I had a little side discussion that I'd like uh, that we'd all like to share, and that that was sort of prompted by my observation of of the uh, uh, it, you know sometimes the people side of the house and the content side of the house of museums don't always see eye to eye. And uh, and and uh, Beth, you were talking a little bit about how that then is is really different yeah. when um, in, that you found in a magnetic museum. Yeah, I just wanted to say that what we found in these magnetic museums is, is that everybody was on the people side of the house. Um, and that distinction really was gone. Um, and I do think, uh, you know, that, that, that we've seen a change in the way that dynamic is, that pow- it's a power struggle sometimes, but we've seen a change and a positive change in the way that dynamic is playing out. Anne, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, and I would just say that, um, you know, I think that that um, stems from the fact that there has just been so much more focus um, in, in terms of, you know, um, both undergraduate and graduate programs in arts administration and museum studies and the like, where, you know, this is really understood to be part and parcel of the entire holistic framework of what it takes to run a thriving you know, cultural organization or, or museum. And it's, uh, you know, so it isn't just the bailiwick of the content generators, the, the curators and the, the scientists and the educators, people who are developing, you know, the program side of the business. There's now a greater understanding of the importance of all those operational pieces, especially the, the things that connect the program to the community, the audience, um, the stakeholders, of the institution, so um, we th- we see that as a positive for the field. Yeah, I I think that that uh, that's well said, and it I think in many fields, uh, uh, or you know, the ideas are coming out of many fields, whether it's um, you know mission driven institutions or even entertainment institutions, are are realizing that it's not just delivering the products and our services, but it. Uh, it is looking at why why they're developing those products and and how they're they're making uh, people's lives better or uh, doing doing things for their community and and what value they have and I think that also uh, once you sort of make that shift it it uh, leads you to asking different questions I would think mm-hmm. well and it's something more and more that we're seeing with the millennial generation that, you know, they care about the experience, you know. So in, in no matter what framework they're, they're working in, so whether it's their, their work or their play, you know, it's the experience that matters. Yes, absolutely. So why don't we get into it a little bit? Uh, Beth, um, maybe you'd like to start sure. of... Uh, you know, you there. The book identifies six key practices of magnetic museums, and so why don't you just lead us off with uh, with a few of them, and then Anne can uh, yeah. follow up. Well, just in in sort of in brief. So the first thing that we found in all of these organizations was that they built core core alignment around a very compelling shared vision of the future, and you know, alignment's at the center of magnetism. Everything, all the all the positive and negative um, uh, poles of the, inside the atomic structure have to be aligned in the same direction in order to turn 
a piece of iron ore into a magnet. So if you don't have that alignment, you don't begin to generate the kind of energetic, attractive force that we see inside these museums. So that's just a very fundamental central part of, of magnetism. The second practice that we see is, that, is, is they embrace what we call 360 engagement. And that means that they take a very holistic approach to activating everyone that the museum touches. Mm-hmm. So from the inside out, it's the staff, the board, the volunteers, as well as starting to move to the outside, the patrons who support the activities of the museum, the visitors, the community that they're impacting. And they do that through a combination of very meaningful work and very meaningful experiences. As Anne said, it's all about the experience. And so it's whether the employees who work in that institution who are really have to drive it forward and be its you know, core communicators or the others on the outside who by sharing in meaningful experiences adopt a feeling of, of ownership and relationship and belonging uh, by virtue of that, that 360 engagement is very, very critical. And you can't do it only internal engagement or only external engagement. You really have to do the whole thing. The third thing, and this is very much related to the engagement, it's sort of the how that goes behind the engagement, is that they adopt um, you know, a model of distributed leadership that results in empowering others. And it's done by developing and tapping you know, the innate wisdom, talent, and creativity that resides both within the staffs of these organizations, but also, quite frankly, within the audiences that we serve and within the communities that we reach out to. So what we find is this very dynamic exchange of, um, of action and responsibility and ownership and power and participation that happens in these museums. And in some cases, you, we, we've all experienced um, you know, cultural, ex, cultural institutions that seem to be kind of closed systems. You know, we, we decide what we put on, we put it on, you come, you see it, you go away. You come back and you see the next thing, you go away. What we see in these museums is that they are much more engaged and empowered in this way. So it means that these institutions are highly people-focused and they are highly service-oriented. Mm-hmm. And do you want to take the, you want to talk about the next three? Sure. So um, the fourth practice we uh, called widening the circle and inviting the outside in. Um, we loved learning that magnetic museums are communitarian in spirit. Isn't that a wonderful word? We found them to be uh, open, inclusive, and, um, and, and quite generous, actually. And they manifest this in a variety of ways, predominantly by bringing stakeholders into dialogue with the museum and then acting on that dialogue um, and, and forging bonds with people who share common interests. They're what Malcolm Gladwell calls connectors, you know. And, um, yeah, and then as they grow their circles of friends and, and broaden their networks, they, um, they have greater influence. Um, and they are, as, as you said earlier, um, Carol, you know, they, money, kind of flow, re, money and resources naturally flow to them. Um, and it's really because of the, they, that they are creating these meaningful ways for stakeholders and audiences to participate and to engage in the life of the museum. The fifth practice, we, uh, it's about becoming essential to the 
uh, the audiences and the communities that the institution serves. The, the magnetic museums have intentionally linked their cultural mission with the civic agenda uh, and the communities that they're uh, where they where they're situated and and who they serve. They've actually, you know, they've reached out to their community to, to learn what are the issues and where can they have impact? How can they um, be relevant to the people that they're in a partnership with? And, and, you know, in a sense, they've become activists. And they've, they've found and then acted on the points of intersection where an organization's mission and vision come into contact with the world around it. And as a result, they're, they're trusted partners and they're part of the social fabric of their communities. Yeah, their relevance just goes way up because of that. Yeah. And the last practice uh, we call building trust through high performance. Um, and, you know, this, the, the trust that's engendered um, by, uh, by and among their stakeholders is really because these organizations consistently deliver on their promises and uh, often they exceed expectations. They've been able to integrate the meaning of their work with the business means that uh, enable them to accomplish their goals. Um, they focus on, on you know, what's called the three Ps, purpose, people, and profit. Purpose is uh, how well they advance their core mission, what Beth talked about earlier. Um, the people is how deeply they represent and engage with their full range of constituencies, internal and external, and profit, of course, is how well they drive the resources that sustain their operations. So, um, you know, the other thing that we found about magnetic museums is that they are doing all of these things all the time, and they're very, uh, it's, it's very front and center for them. Um, they, are, they are aware that this is, you know, there are lots of balls in the air that they are juggling. Yeah. I, that's a very interesting point, and I I didn't want to interrupt either one of you while you you know I think it's always good for for our listeners to get the framework uh, that that you've um, that you've laid out, and I thank you both for doing that. I I want to go back and and dig uh, you know just get some some more examples, but the the um, one of the points I was going to make, um, Anne, and you you uh, you made it I think very clearly is that. All of these activities, you know, each of these activities that you've identified are are, are themes that uh, we uh, certainly on this show uh, we talk about a lot. Uh, the idea of uh, maybe we use different language. We may talk about co-creation or working mm-hmm. with our audience or you know a variety of things. But the fact that all of these things are happening within a single institution. It's not just the institution says, we're just for the community and that's that's what we're going to do. And 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 so could you talk a little uh, bit um and Anne maybe you want to take this. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how these things knit together? Well, I think, you know, I mean, if we look at the six case studies, the six museums that we profiled, each one of them kind of came at this um, through their their own situation. And um, 
some of them actually do these six practices better than others. But um, again, it, you know, it's uh, it's all holistic in their approach. So, for example, um, the Greensboro Science Center in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's a zoo, aquarium, and um, natural uh, science center all rolled into one. <laughs> Wonderful organization, and. You know, they're in a community that was really hard hit by the recession in the 1990s and, you know, also this latest recession. So, you know, economic development was a huge issue for the community, for the civic leadership, for the government officials, for the um, schools and universities in the area. And uh, Glenn Dobregosh, who was the director there when he arrived, he really took the temperature of the institution, and he and his senior team made 500 presentations to community groups to really hear what was happening within their community and how they could be uh, relevant and in sync with what the needs of the community were. And from that became this idea of becoming a, um, a catalyst for cultural tourism. And, um, you know, within a few years, they actually have become the number two cultural tourism destination in the state behind the, the local sports stadium. But they, you know, so everything that they did then came, you know, was aligned with that vision of being in connection with their community. And, you know, uh, Glenn empowered his staff to just take ideas and run with it. Um, you know, and the ex- extraordinarily creative things resulted from that. And, you know, the community responded in kind. The The board stepped up in a completely different kind of way. There were all c- kinds of connections made with other uh, community groups and cultural organizations and uh, relationships with the schools. And, you know, it was all because they said that, you know, what's our raison d'etre? Our, well, we're here to actually be of service to our community and how, how best can we do that? You know what I think is very interesting about that example, Anne, and of course, you know, science centers are always near and dear to my heart. <laughs> is uh, now, and that doesn't mean you know we can't talk about art museums on my show, but and we do sometimes. But uh, I just came back from uh, the Association of Science Technology Centers uh, convention, so I do have science centers on my mind. So I'm glad that you brought up uh, the Greensboro example, and I would suspect, although I can't remember. Reading reading this specifically in your book, that when uh, the director and the staff went out uh, and talked to the members of the community and uh, uh, listened, listened carefully, uh, they weren't put off if their learning science and having fun with technology wasn't top on the audience's response list, that they looked uh, deeper at uh, community values and Mm -hmm. concerns. Absolutely, but they were indeed aided by the fact that they have some, you know, amazingly cute furry creatures in their zoo <laughs> that, that bring people back time and time again. Well, yeah, and not in any way to undermine the incredible work that they've done. But I'd also say, Anne, in their case, that that there was a there was a really um, there was a really good uh, match up actually between the um, identity that the region was crafting for itself, which was as a 
science and technology leader mm-hmm. in the wake of having lost a lot of industry out of that area. And right. so there was, a, there was a connect between the institution's mission and the community's desire. Now, the fact that they were able to you know, get a twofer, if you will, you know, be, be, a, be, a, be an engine for economic impact and do it in a way that is also meaningful and driving, you know, a, a next generation of science learners and technology workers is, is a double, it's a double plus. And that's actually where you'll see across the board when we look at other examples that we studied, they were all kind of tapping into what was it that was really critical for that community. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you look at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh, you know, the issue in Pittsburgh was really the educational attainment gap and what was happening with young people coming up uh, into the system. And, of course, Pittsburgh has really been repositioning itself as a knowledge center, right, a, a knowledge producer and a, uh, and, 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 and a huge educational center. And yet they had this terrible, terrible, terrible um, high school dropout rate. And so when the Children's Museum began its process, it really said, we need to do anything we can do to be good for children and families. And if somebody in this community wants to contribute to improving the way children learn and grow and live, we welcome them into our midst. And that was transformative for their organization. So it wasn't the same issue as North Carolina, but... It was where they found the place of intersection between what they cared about as a cultural institution and what the community needed. Yes, very, very well said. We are going to take our second short break, and we will be back, and there's so much more to talk about with Ann and Beth, so please stay tuned. You're listening to Carol Bossert. This is Museum Life. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today we are uh, talking with Anne Bergeron and Beth Tuttle. This is our final uh, segment of the show, and, you know, sometimes I wish uh, that we didn't have to take breaks because we get uh, some of the best conversation happens uh, while you're listening to a commercial. But um, when we were on this last break, Anne and Beth and I were talking about one of the, you know, lots of organizations, you know, walk the walk. They say, oh, yes, we care about the community and we go out and we talk to the community. But but uh, often many of them, uh, you know, only listen to the community if they if the community tells them what they want to hear. And they're, they're not necessarily open and honest listeners and Beth you were making a, a comment that I or, or Anne I'm sorry you were making a comment about um, museum directors not only being honest but also humble uh, and I thought that was a very interesting uh, point you we don't usually hear about uh, the quality of humbleness when we think about museum directors and leadership well, you know, I mean, one of the things that we kind of debunked in um, the process of this study was the holy grail nature of the charismatic leader, which is not to say that, you know, strong leaders are not very important to magnetic museums. They are. Um, you know, and Beth talked about this earlier, you know, when she was discussing the, the practice of empowering others. Um, we found that the, these leaders that we profiled in the book were, you know, for the most part, rather humble. Um, and they were not dictatorial. Certainly they had ideas, and they had um, visions about where they wanted their institutions to go. But, you know, it wasn't just their self-created vision. They, they, they co-created they led the co-creation of these visions um, with, you know, with their staff, with their board, with their volunteers, their donors, um, and, you know, with their local communities so that there was um, a real sense of, of relevance and resonance within these, these institutions. And, um, and, you know, they're the first ones to give credit to somebody else about some success that the institution has had. And that was... 
for us, extremely refreshing. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, and, and, and I, was, I was looking uh, back through some of the tips in the book, and one of them, um, which I was reminded of, says, it's just think like a maestro, although I'm going to laugh and say that most maestros that we think of are, are, are larger-than-life personalities. But Benjamin Zander, who's a wonderful conductor, he says it so well. He says, you know, you have to conduct rather than control. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. the conductor mm-hmm. of an orchestra does not make a sound. Right, Xander says he depends for his or her power on the ability to make other people powerful and to awaken possibility mm-hmm. in other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just a tremendous way to put it. And you know, at the end of the day, he says, "He says, how do you know if you're doing it well as a leader?" He says, "Because there's shining eyes all around you." looking back at you. Mm -hmm. That's when you know you've awakened the possibility in other people. And I think that we heard over and over from these directors and we heard from their staffs, but you also could see it in their visitors and the people around their organizations. Everybody ended up with the shining eyes because they were so alive and engaged and so empowered. And we, you know, we, we taught, we know about empowering staffs. I don't know that we always think about how we empower our visitors and our guests to, you know, be part of this experience and to contribute and to help create that experience. So, well, and you know, um, the, these organizations, you know, they're they're the, the the holistic nature of their stakeholders. They talked in one voice about what the organizations were doing, and it wasn't just you know like contrived um, phraseology that you know they had um, memorized. It was something that they had internalized, and they really believed it because they got to live it and they got to express it in their own way. And, you know, Beth and I, when we made our site visits and, and did the intense, um, you know, interviews and, and, and uh, you know, conversations with people, you know, we, we really looked at the full gamut. We didn't just talk to the director or just a couple of board members or just a few senior staff. You know, we talked with everybody within the organization and without. And um, it was, that was part of the story, too, as how, how remarkably consistent um, yeah. what people told us was. So. Very, very interesting. So we've, you know, we're sort of, uh, I think you've given some good answers to, uh, you know, a museum director who is listening to this program uh, uh, has already gotten some some very, very good advice. But uh, I'm wondering, do you have other pieces of advice or tips uh, that that uh, a budding museum director, uh, either a current one or one in the making, uh, might take away from uh, lessons they might take? Take away from your your book and your research. <laughs> well, it it requires a very large amount of intention and focus, mm-hmm. and it takes time. Mm-hmm. And I think those those two lessons were just told back to us over and over again. You know, institutions don't change; the people within them have to change. Right? The people who activate the institution have to be motivated by this clearly defined intention and that intention just has to be shared around this notion of continuously engaging the hearts and minds of the people that we touch. And I think the issue of it taking time, I mean, Anne, what was it that, I mean, most of these directors had been in place seven years, 
a minimum of seven years and some of them as many as 15 mm-hmm. to 20. Mm-hmm. And they all said this was not a quick process. No. That certainly debunks uh, also some of the uh, statistics that have, that have come out over the years, and I'm not up on the current ones about the, uh, uh, the, the life uh, the lifespan of mm-hmm. a uh, typical art museum director. I know at one time it was certainly under 10 years, and I think at one time it was about five. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, I, think, I think that is what the current average is, is between five to seven years. And, um, you know, they all said that is you are barely getting through the change and barely getting it ingrained at that point. And so a lot of this is about perseverance, Right. A lot of it's about patience. Well, and, you know, we don't want to scare anybody, but, you know, not only is it, does it take time and, and intentional effort, but, you know, it's not necessarily easy. And, um, you know, <laughs> the joke I would make is that it's a whole lot easier to write about magnetism than it is to actually be magnetic. That's the truth. <laughs> and... Um, and it also requires, you know, this is not something that you just arrive at one day and say, hey, wow, look, we're magnetic. You know, we can sit back and, you know, take a vacation. I mean, you know, it is important to obviously take time to, um, you know, give yourself a rest. But, you know, magnetism is an ongoing process. It's, you know, it's, it's an evolutionary process, and it requires, you know, constant care and attention. Well, and not to to be trite about it, but uh, the the thread that I am hearing uh, uh, th- as both of you talk is that it is a a genuine way of life. That this yeah. is not a contrived yeah. approach. And I and and I and I guess that has been one of the things that I found so refreshing about your book. I mean, certainly this is this is not the first museum management book that has been written. Uh, you are you are standing on um, you know certainly a body of literature, but to me it is it is written in a language and it is proof of what many of us sort of feel in our hearts but don't always know how to express express and and that that really is that that this is not a, a polarizing uh, you know mission versus market or or you know, the other term that I, and I've been guilty of using it too sort of like the sweet spot between mission and market as as if those two things were diametrically opposed and right. the director's role was right. to you know figure out where in the Venn diagram they overlap uh, I, I, and I think that that is how much of our conversation has been over the 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 last few well certainly many years ago and what you're saying is that that there you know if you look at the Venn diagram most of uh in a, a magnetic museum those two circles are mostly overlapped yeah right. we, we, we use the image of the dna right the the, right. the 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 twisting strands where you've got meaning and means you know kind of intricately Entwined with one another, and and um, and that and that together they make the whole. Well, it's the it's the memorable mantra, as we called them, for the Franklin Institute, where they said, you know, no margin, no mi- no mission, meaning that if they didn't have the resources and the capacity to, you know, do their work, they couldn't actually deliver on their mission. So the two had to go hand in hand. Could you talk a little bit more about that that one, Beth? 
Which one? Sorry. The, I'm sorry, the Franklin Institute. I thought oh. that was very, very interesting. Oh, sure, sure. I'm sorry. Um, so the, the, the transformation of the Franklin Institute really did have to do with having a very, uh, you know, it was an institution that had essentially gotten ahead of itself, right? It happens so often with organizations that are, that are bent on a path of, 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 of growth or improvement sometimes when they just move too fast. And they and they they overprogram themselves or they overbuild themselves, and so that institution had a really um, you know serious financial situation that they had to write, and they righted it by going back to the core of their mission and really committing to um, you know the practices of of, of high performing organizations, which meant they became quite data driven in the work that they were doing. Um, they, they really um, put the uh, mission return and financial return on equal footing in terms of the way they evaluated what they would do when they went forward. And all of those kinds of things came together to help the institution write its ship and to build um, the kind of trust and investment from the community that then allowed them to move forward again on a much stronger footing. Great. Yes, thank you very much because I think, uh, again, reading the case studies are what puts all of these ideas into real solid practice and, and to show that that uh, the people that righted the ship, so to speak, uh, uh, weren't dealt an easy hand and it took them a lot of time to uh, work, work out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the interesting thing about the Franklin, too, is that they have gone through a leadership transition mm-hmm. um, from the director who led them through this transformative process um, to now, and then they tapped someone who had been on the senior team to now um, lead the institution. And so all of this remains, you know, in practice. So, you know, you talked about that, you know, magnetism is like a general way of life. You know, I would say it's really kind of a belief system. And, you know, the Franklin has, you know, all of these people who believe that this approach is the thing that has made them, um, you know, so um, meaningful to their community. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact Mm -hmm. that they have... they. Uh, you know, co-founded a uh, uh, technology and science magnet school right. in Philadelphia, and it's now one of the highest performing schools in the city. You know, that came out of their fundamental belief of, um, you know, the work that they're doing is important, but it needed to have, you know, real impact on, on their community in, in ways that were sustainable. Yep. Yes, and and I that that's a perfect way to end our show today. Anne uh, and Beth, thank you so very very much. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and I would recommend to everyone listening today buy the book uh, AAM Press: uh, Magnetism, the Art and Science of Engagement. And Beth, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having us. And we will be back next week with another uh, uh, episode of Museum Life. Uh, Stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert. Thanks for listening today. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. 
Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. We'll be right back. 